0: The Honorable Corey A. Booker is the mayor of Newark, New Jersey. Elected in 2006, he set about marshalling the resources of his city to increase security, build economic abundance, and create an environment that is nurturing and empowering for individuals and families. By the middle of Mayor Booker's first term, Newark led the nation's large cities with a 40 percent reduction in shootings and murders, doubled affordable housing production, and committed to a $40 million transformation of its parks and playgrounds. Under his leadership, the city has expanded support programs for ex-offenders and for fathers striving to meet their obligations and introduced innovative programs for at-risk youth. Before his election, he served as staff attorney for the Urban Justice Center and as Newark's Central Ward Councilman, where his work created the foundation for his leadership as mayor. He received a BA and an MA from Stanford University, a BA in Modern History from Oxford University where he was a Rhodes Scholar, and a JD from Yale Law School. In today's presentation, he will provide insight into a challenge facing all urban communities, reclaiming and empowering at-risk youth. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Mayor Cory Booker.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. I stand before you in a holy place, and I hope that you all in your silent meditations will pray for me and my city right now, because we are enduring something that you all know how to deal with a lot better than those of us on the East Coast, which is snow. so in the depth of this dark winter, I hope within this church there is an invincible spring and that you all could send that warmth to my city. And uh, I've been up since very early this morning commanding salt trucks and snow trucks. And, and then I realized I'm commanding all of this on the ground. I need to make sure that I can get into the air after my speech and land in the airport. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty right now, but I am very, very happy to be here and humbled that you all would ask me to come before you to share some of my insights because I've learned that every city has a particular genius. Every city has a deep reservoir of wisdom and strength and that in no way should one city think that they are the teacher or the professor and the other the student. The reality is we're all in this uh, journey together, learning from each other, growing from each other and gaining from each other's experience. So today I hope in our question and answers we can dig down deeper into specific policy issues, but right now I would like to hit you with some very important themes around this central issue of uh, so-called at-risk youth, but more importantly I think they are themes that are critical for any kind of urban transformation. Let me start with a lesson I was taught as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, excuse me, working in East Palo Alto, California. If you know Palo Alto, California is one of uh, California's, especially then in the 80s, one of California's greatest cities uh, and and highest quality of life. East Palo Alto was dealing with a lot of urban problems. But I was working in a summer program. I was there as a young football player at Stanford University and uh, spending my summer working out as much as I could in the gym and working with young people uh, as much as I could in a community center where there were what many would call uh, at-risk youth. And I remember at the end of this summer, I wanted to leave these young kids. I was was assigned 12 of them, ages 6 to 12. Uh, uh, and that was my sports team with other athletes who were working with their groups, I wanted to leave them with an inspiring word or two. And I remember that some sports psychologist had come through and talked to my high school team where he did this experiment where he had everybody in my team raise their hands as high as they could, and we all did, and then he said, now raise your hand three inches higher, and inevitably everybody just stretched a little bit more, stood on their tiptoes, and then he gave a wonderful talk about you can always do a little bit more, you can always go three inches more. So this was my lesson. And I pulled the 12 kids together and I said, look guys, I want you to uh, raise your hand as high as you can. And all the kids, it was the end of a long day, and said, no man, that sounds stupid, don't put, oh man's got B.O., put your hand down, oh this is terrible. And, and I am no great child psychologist, nor was I as in my teenage years, but I decided to uh, reach for one of the more baser uh, means of persuasion uh, in human society, understanding that we all are rational market actors. I decided to bribe the young children, and I reached in my pocket and I pulled out a $5 bill, and I said, $5 to the kid who could raise his hand the highest. And immediately, these very uh, 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 well-motivated young people suddenly shot their hands into the air, being the young budding capitalists that they were. They thrust their hands into space, comparing them to each other, beginning to look and smile, the tall ones uh, parading over the shorter ones. And then suddenly, the shortest of them all, young man named Robert, who was the youngest of them all, uh, looked around uh, at the kids, looked at him down, his face was all in the pout, and he he was as cute as a young Emmanuel Lewis or, 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 or young uh, 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 Gary Coleman, just the cutest little kid you could imagine. And I just wanted to hug him and hold him. He had a tough home life. And uh, as, as he was looking more frustrated, uh, I walked towards him and then suddenly he turned around and started sprinting towards the door. And I'm like, oh, what did I do? And I ran after him and I grabbed him from behind picked him up his little legs were kicking underneath him and struggling to have me. he goes let me go let me go and I said Robert what is wrong he said you said you would give $5 to the kid who could raise his hand the highest right and I said yeah right and he looked at the kids and looked back at me and with the wisdom that betrayed his age he said well I know a way to get to the roof <laughs> I, I gave him the $5 <laughs> We all know the well-worn African parable. It takes a village to raise a child. But I actually like to flip that around. I believe it takes a child to raise a village. Our children are here to teach us. They're calling us, trying to inspire us to live up to the truth of who they are. Every child born to glorify and magnify the wonders of the universe, created in the image of God, calling to us every day to try to lead us as a community to higher ground. This is the challenge. I often talk in my community that our children call to our conscience every day because they recite words that we should live by. They say day after day after day, more than any of us adults do, that we are one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Those words are profound in meaning, but they have yet fully to take root in this young nation of America. And the question is, is will we follow that calling, embrace our children's genius, and pursue a world that not only reflects their genius, but nurtures it, strengthens it, emboldens it, so that they may lead us into our future. And so this to me is one of the most critical challenges. It is this understanding that all of our children not only have that potential, but that we as stewards of their future have an obligation to nurture it with all of our willingness to come together. Now in Newark, we began with this understanding, but we knew that our children were geniuses, but we also had one other challenge to ultimately realize. You see, we knew that children did not exist in vacuums, and that if we did not address the issues facing families, that we would not be successful in addressing children. And we started looking at a whole array of issues, trying to follow our children, and be there for them when, they needed them when they needed us most. We worked on every single aspect to look at the whole quality of life from a kid from before they're born to literally uh, uh, till their 21st year. And we started finding things the more we had analyzed the problems that jumped off of the page that we were not being a community in unity, that we were letting cracks and fissures between us cause our children remarkable problems. One of the things we saw was just our children who did get in trouble, we were wondering. We went up to the youth house, literally taking visits to see what was going on. And when we found out when the children were released from the youth house, uh, from incarceration, whether they were adjudicated or not, they most likely would come back. I went very recently to visit Rikers Island's youth facility out in New York. And I talked to the people who were there, some really heroic people who work hard every day, and I asked them, when was the last time you had a recidivism measure here in Rikers Island? And they said, well, the last study we did was, was very shocking. And I said, well, what did it say? It said, well, 80% of the kids that we release come back within three years. I said, 80%? We looked at our uh, youth facilities in Newark and saw the same dramatic numbers the children who are incarcerated in their youth, the likelihood that they're to be re-incarcerated with their youth is somewhere between 60 and 80%. In fact, what we saw is even if they weren't reincarcerated in their youth, the fact that the, the chances of them getting reincarcerated as an adult were dramatically high. And so we started just saying, well, what can we do immediately to start to address this problem? And one thing that we saw was we as city leaders didn't have control over what happened in the prison, but we saw as soon as they were released, government and community leaders just sort of stepped back and that was it. In fact, we started saying, well, what if we were that 14 year old kid or 15 year old kid? What would we have to do to get back into society? And we saw a crazy maze that this child had to go through. They had to go meet with a parole officer that was not even in our city. It was in a neighboring city called East Orange. They had to, uh, couldn't go back to their local school, the local school didn't want them anymore. They had to go down to our central bureaucracy and navigate a Byzantine labyrinth to find a way into a school that met their needs, if indeed there was a school that met their needs. They didn't have an advocate to help them out, they didn't even have a bus car to try to get around our big city to get where they needed to go. And we realized again that this was not a problem with the child, this was a problem with the community that often finds it so easy to belittle or berate young people or to, say, simply lock them up, as opposed to realizing that the problems that are existing for them are reflections of problems with us. One of my favorite authors, James Baldwin, has a wonderful saying where he says, children are never good at listening to their elders, but they never fail to imitate them. And this was a reality where our children, having no models of love and caring and community, were falling through cracks and becoming to perfect representations of the problems we were making for them. So we started working very hard to address every issue using one of the greatest gifts that we believe we have as human beings is our gift of creativity. We analyzed the entire United States of America, trying to look for programs and plans that were working, because I'm not a big person that's patient with incremental change. We wanted to create transformative change. We were looking to create revolutions. The mission statement of my city is that we will set a national standard for urban change. And so the first thing we did is brought together venture philanthropists, community leaders, and said, let's create a one-stop center of abundance for every child coming out of incarceration. We just celebrated our two-year anniversary this week, of what we call the YES Center, the Youth Education Employment Success Center. And there we co-located everything. We brought in our universities like Rutgers University, mentoring organizations, the school system, probation, parole, drug treatment, and have been working to design a program over with over 100 partners that is gonna take every child that comes out of incarceration and elevate them to the level of access to, to, to resources, of access to uh, um, uh, services, to access to love, so that they can transform their lives. Our celebration this week of two years was almost like a party. We couldn't believe the measurable results that we were getting from the organization. But more than that, the momentum of it is now starting to create a one-stop revolution in our state. We took this model and decided that we were going to bring more services out into the community. We started 12 what we call family success centers because we realized so many families in need with young children who were also getting lost in the disjointed array of services, so we decided to create one-stops all around our city where people could go in one place and say, I'm not sure what services are there, but I need help with my child. I need help with my family. We're facing trials. Our success with them has encouraged us to go even further, to go even more, to try to attract more venture philanthropists, to address problems that other people talk about or study, but that we could find dramatic results. We looked at the children most likely to go to jail and found out that the most likely child to go to jail in America is a child with an incarcerated adult. And we said, this is a pattern that we have to break and not just break it, we need to shatter that that problem. And so how can we start with that? One of the things we realized is that there were so many single mothers with incarcerated spouses or spouses that were not involved with their lives because they got caught up in the criminal justice system. They had child support arrears growing higher and higher while they were in prison and then they'd come out of prison and they wouldn't want anywhere near that woman because they couldn't find a job in the legitimate economy and didn't want to face somebody that they owed a lot of money to. We started talking to fellas that had come home and we realized something that was true that one of the most powerful visceral urges that a man has, no matter who you are, no matter what your educational, racial, uh, socioeconomic background, a visceral passion for men is to be a good father. You want to be it. You may not know how to, but you want to. So we decided that we were gonna take guys coming home from prison who were dads, who were fathers, and start a program to try to empower them to be the greatest uh, uh, fathers, to be dramatically involved in our children's lives. And what we found was, as soon as we pulled them together, is that we were starting to see the seeds of success. We decided to create a fraternity and we called it Delta Alpha Delta Sigma, guys like fraternities. And those of you who are now getting it, that's dads. <laughs> and we called together our community, this idea of unifying Newark around common ends. We pulled together Men's Warehouse to donate suits to the fellas because, you know, in order to uh, feel good, sometimes you do have to look good. And we started uh, pulling together uh, mentor dads because I know on a day like this in New Jersey, Uh, When I was a young kid, too too young to go out and shovel driveways, I would be woken up by my father at 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning, shoveling the driveway because he was going to get to work no matter how many feet of snow were on the ground. I had a father that didn't have to tell me about a work ethic. I learned it. I had a father that didn't have to tell me about fatherhood. I had that example. But many men, many young men growing up don't have it. So we decided to get mentor fathers to partner with the fathers in our fatherhood uh, program. And before you knew it, we had mentor fathers, we had men's warehouse, we had venture philanthropists helping us to fund the program, and now national recidivism rates for men in America are dramatic. There are upwards of 60 to 65% of men after three years will go back to prison. A tragic failure for a nation that professes freedom for us to be locking up so many people multiple times during out their life. In our program, we've only got two years of data right now, but this program, marshaled around values, around the highest ideal of being there for your kids, our two-year recidivism rates right now are less than 5%. And we have the highest employment rate of any of our ex-offender programs because men are finding jobs, keeping jobs. But what's more important to me than these practical things which you can measure, what's more powerful to me was to be at this graduation, again, we had this ceremony just this past weekend, and to stand there with all of these men some of them holding their children, to see their family members standing in the back of the auditorium as this graduation ceremony went on. And I have been to Ivy League graduations. I have been to high school graduations. I have been to more graduations than I care to think about. My father used to always say, boy, you got more degrees than a thermometer, but you can't tell the temperature. I'm (laughs) tired of going to graduations for you. You need to get a job. I'm a politician. He's still wondering when I'm going to get a job. But this graduation was so moving, to see the women and how proud they were of these men, to see the young children wave when the valedictorian speaker got up there and said, I am here because of my daughter, and to see a 10-year-old girl stand up in the audience, looking at her father with love and admiration. This was, to me, the real success. You know, I remember the presidential elections where I heard so many people in the primaries on a Father's father's, uh, 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 Day uh, sort of saying, men should take care of their children, they should raise their children, and everybody's going to agree with that. We all could stand from a pulpit, frankly, and preach values. But that is not what our nation has ever been about. If we just preach at each other, if that was America's history, we would not be where we are. We're not a a nation where each of us tell each other what to do. We're not a nation of this rugged individualism and preaching of personal responsibility. We're a nation who has a powerful history of communities coming together in profound and spiritual ways to empower the behavior that we yearn for in a tough economy like this, we must know that's the reality, that that I was brought up hearing stories about rent parties in the Northeast, where people were coming over folks' house to help them pay the rent. And in the Midwest, I heard stories of barn raisings, where people didn't say, you need to build a farm over there. The community came together to help each other. I'm here today because of an at-risk youth. My dad, who is uh, one of the stars of my life, his stories, I have to say, get a little bit more extreme every year. <laughs> you know, first he tells me I was I was born poor in North Carolina. Now he's just I was born POE, couldn't afford the other two letters. Core, I was a POE boy for North Carolina. <laughs> you know, this geographical anomaly in in North Carolina that I don't know how they have tsunamis and hurricanes and tornadoes that hit every one of his stories. It seems to be some kind of weather challenge and. And and his school was, again, someplace where he walked uphill to get to and uphill to go home as well. And and first it was a nice school, and then it became a one-room schoolhouse. And now most of the stories, it's a lean-to on the side of a mountain. Um, But my father was one of these young boys who grew up to a single mom. And his mother could not take care of him. And his grandmother stepped in. Now, we in Newark found out that more and more in America, grandparents are raising their grandchildren. And in Newark, this percentage is about 10 or 11 percent of every one of our children, about one out of every 10, is being raised by a grandparent. So we scoured the nation and looked around for models, found one uh, that only one of the grandparents' support center, one-stop center for grandparents, we could find. So we examined it a little bit and decided that we were going to replicate it and try to make it better and we opened, uh, under my leadership, a grandparent support center, a one-stop shop. And again, to see senior citizens on fixed incomes, who are now stretching that to cover their, ch- their grandchildren who didn't know about services, was a very moving thing. But in my father's life, uh, there was no grandparent support center or of a community coming together in that way. His grandmother couldn't take care of him as well, so he was taken in by the community, community that loved him and nurtured him. And eventually, I sent him to college. My father tells stories about getting envelopes from just acquaintances with cash in it, people that knew he was going a hard way, helping him make his way through North Carolina Central University. My father said he came out of college in the early 60s where he was involved with, as many people were in North Carolina that year, in sit-in movements, and the civil rights movements. He met my mom uh, and married up, as I remind him all the time, a woman better than him. And uh, they were in D.C. during the March on Washington. My mom tells me about taking a a summer off to uh, uh, help organize through the Urban League, knowing that there were going to be tens of thousands of people coming uh, for this amazing demonstration on the mall. And there was my mother uh, uh, helping people get to DC and get home onto buses during this march. They were fighting battles of of lore in my family. My father was the first salesman hired uh, by numerous companies as an African American. When they went to move up to New Jersey, they couldn't be, weren't shown houses in white neighborhoods. Had to get a, a, a white couple to pose as them, to buy the house I eventually grew up in. And my mom and dad, interestingly, keep telling me that the white couple was this extraordinary, nice couple that worked with them through the Fair Housing Council. And they were white, but their names were Mr. and Mrs. Brown. They didn't want me to forget that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so imagine my life experience when I am with my dad, And he is with me in brick towers, some public housing projects that I lived in for close to a decade. And his son was engaged in the fight to transform a city. And Newark is a place of profound promise, of strong neighborhoods, of incredible people. I always say I have the privilege of serving with giants in the trenches of our democracy to try to make our democracy real and substantive and true. And so my father comes to this one neighborhood in Newark, which is not as strong as many of the others, and he's sitting with me in brick towers and looking out the window, and my father with a sense of humor and joy in his life, and he believes that every day you have the greatest choice possible, to choose your attitude. And he, he turned to me and my father of bold optimism looks at me and he said, I'm worried, son. And I said, why? He goes, I'm worried because I fear that in America today, A child growing up in my exact same circumstances, poor, minority, in a viciously segregated world, maybe not segregated de jure, but de facto, that is being raised not by his mom, but maybe his grandmother, that that child has worse life outcomes and possibilities than I did being born under those circumstances in 1936. I felt when my father said that to me, that he was damning my generation of Americans. That his generation that fought so many incredible battles, that sacrificed so much, that stood on the beaches of Normandy, that that, that fought in the trenches of the Civil Rights Movement, that advanced our democracy forward, that now, in the twilight years of my father's life, he was actually worrying for the country that he was handing off to his son. This is not a reality that I accept. We must all be thinking to ourselves not on our watch. We cannot have a nation bold and free if we do not address the greatest crisis in our country. I had a conversation once with Colin Powell after a smaller speech than this, where he talked about nuclear proliferation, the war in Iraq, where he talked about the threat of terrorism. And I said to him, what do you think the greatest threat to our democracy is in the next 50 years? And this man didn't even seem to think about the answer to the question. This great statesman, this great military leader, looked at me and said, the greatest threat to our nation right now to our democracy in the next 50 years is our inability to educate all of our children at equal and high levels. I've looked at McKinsey studies that show what our graduation rate, low graduation rates mean to our GDP and how just raising them a bit could have powerful impacts for our economy. I've seen in, 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 in tangible terms the difference it makes when we are there for our children. I now know how much money my city pays, tens and tens of millions of dollars, addressing the failures of our community, the failures of our society. But I also know on the flip side of that, I am thrilled as a student of our nation, who's traveled coast to coast looking for ideas to bring to Newark, who's who's seen brilliance exhibited in my own city by courageous Americans that have created within Newark these islands of excellence. The challenge is not in America anymore of can we address the challenges facing our children? The question is, is do we have the collective will? Is this our national priority? Now, I love this. A friend of mine gave me before he left me in City Hall. I've now roped him back. I'm sort of like the Jersey Mafia. You cannot leave. But he gave me a little plaque and he said to me uh, 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 this is a quote from the Maasai tribe, if I pronounce it right, Kasarian and Ngira. And the quote basically is what two Maasai warriors will say to each other when they meet. The people charged with protecting the culture and the brilliance and the greatness of the Maasai, the warriors themselves, they focus on the most important thing even in their very greetings to each other. And the greeting that word those two words i just said translated into english is actually a question and the question they say every single day to them is how are the children are our children are our children the central focus that we have it's not a matter of can we it's a matter of will we we have islands of excellence everywhere across this country. The highest performing public school in all the county in which Newark is, which is a wealthy county in America, one of the wealthier counties in our country, the highest performing school is a Newark public school. We have islands of excellence in this nation. There's not an issue, not a problem, that some innovator, that some idealist, that some trench warrior has not figured out how to get accomplished. The question is, where are we? And I'll leave you with that point. I lived in in Brick Towers, which was one of the greatest communities a a person could hope for. I I was living in a community of love, in a community of consistency, in a determined people that were facing the worst housing conditions you can imagine. Uh, Heat and hot water were intermittent, elevators didn't work, but this was a group of people that taught me more probably in the years that I lived there that I learned in my undergraduate and graduate work in these fancy universities. As my mom used to always tell me, boy, you can learn more from a woman on the fifth floor of the projects than you ever can from one of these fancy professors. And I found out the real way that she was right. And I remember that there were some kids hanging out in the lobby of brick towers. And my, my tenant president, when she met me first, the first thing she said to me is, uh, you want to try to make a difference here? I was a Yale law student at the time. I said, yeah. She goes, well, tell me what you see around you. And she said, well, um, uh, uh, I, I told her I, in response to that, what do I see? She goes, yeah, tell me what you, exactly what you see. I said, okay, I see uh, the, the high rise projects, I see graffiti, I describe the neighborhood. And she said, boy, you can never help me in this building. I go, what do you mean? She goes, you need to understand something. The world you see outside of you is a reflection of what you have inside of you. If you're one of those people who only sees problems and darkness and despair, that's all, you'll ever see. Uh, that's all there'll ever be. But if you're one of those people who sees hope and opportunity and love, even the face of God, then you can be someone who works with me and makes a change. And so I try every day to to, to see through Miss Jones's eyes. I try every day uh, uh, to do like Emerson called us to be, uh, to see with eyes of angels. And here I remember walking into this lobby and I started seeing day after day these kids that were hanging out in my lobby, they went to a local high school. Uh, Occasionally I walked in there and I felt a a, a, a sort of sensed a whiff of something I hadn't smelled since a college fraternity dorm room. And I said, you know what? God's putting these folks right in front of my face. Let me get more involved. It's obviously something's going on here. And I started taking them out to the movies to dinner. I started realizing that they were a little bit further into the a narcotics trade than I had imagined, so I brought friends of mine who had formerly been drug dealers, turn around their lives to tell them the dangers and the perils. But then my campaign for mayor in 2006 started, so I, I had to uh, uh, get very busy, as, as, as we do, and we're focused on our own mission. And I got so caught up in this pursuit of mayor, because I was gonna become mayor of Newark and work with the people to transform our city, and, and got really busy, and then I got elected, and right away, I was getting death threats from gang members, so as mayor-elect, I was having uh, security with me that I had never seen. The state troopers and the county police were offering people to protect me. They were trading off days, and I was coming home now to this lobby with guys with large guns, and these young fellas didn't hang out there anymore. Um, and I, I, I was sworn in in July of that month, and then in August, it hit me that a month I was struggling with this overwhelming reality of violent crime in America. Newark is the second best city over the last four years in reducing shootings, reducing murders. We've done a tremendous job changing the reality that we inherited, but we inherited a reality where there were two people murdered on the day I was elected mayor. Uh, The first year I was elected mayor, there was four, uh, excuse me, uh, there were 435 shootings in my city, more than one person shot a day. And, And so the first month, that was my crisis. And I remember getting to, a shooting scene once, seeing a body covered, and, and turning around to talk to some folks and, and, and sort of minister to them in the community, telling them that this will not last. And I, I, I just felt hurt that day after a month. I went home that night and I woke up and I read the paper and I hit my breaking point. The the name in the, the, the paper of the young boy that had shot that I didn't take the time to even find out his name when I was at that shooting scene, embarrassingly, uh, was the leader of the group of kids that hang out and hung out in my lobby. I remember going to his funeral and, and it was a packed funeral. Teachers and community leaders, everyone was there packing this funeral park called Perry's in Newark. And I remember just standing there in just stoic silence watching just just in a rote way, shaking people's hands, perfunctily getting through what I had to get through. And then I went back to this office, the mayor's office, I hadn't even gotten comfortable in it yet. It's an office where so many great leaders in America's third oldest city had sat. And I, I looked around me and I started crying. I felt anger, frustration, fatigue. And welling up inside of me was this question. There were all these people at his funeral to see his death. Where were they in his life? Where were they when he started experimenting with pot? Where were they when his mother was struggling to raise him as a single mom? Where were they when he started failing in school? Where were they where was i what was i doing that day it had been a while i decided that i was going to live the change that i wanted to see the world that day i became a mentor for three very tough young men that day i decided that i was going to try to live my life as the example of the world i wanted to see that day i decided that i was going to swear an oath to my nation I say it every day, don't I? The Pledge of Allegiance, the Star Spangled Banner. But how much do I love my country? Do I love it as much as the people that stood on the beaches of Norman? Do I love it as much as the people that were down south registering people to vote like Goodwin and Cheney and Schwerner, knowing that those acts could have you dead in a swamp? How much do I love my country? Has this nation become a spectator sport where we think democracy is just that, a spectator sport where we sit on the sidelines and watch TV, Fox News, or MSNBC in a state of sedentary agitation, get all upset about what we're seeing. If you're like me, sometimes you throw your shoe at the TV, you're so mad. Or am I gonna realize that this democracy is a participatory endeavor, that you've gotta get into the arena, that you can't talk about change, you can't wait for the president to bring it, or your governor, or your mayor, that you've gotta get in there. There's a child that needs you today. There are 2.5 million kids on a waiting list right now in America, and that's just one program, Big Brothers and Big Sisters. There's a phenomenal mentoring group right here. They've got a waiting list, too. Four hours a month in Big Brothers and Big Sisters. That's all it takes. It's about the amount of time that people spend watching the Jersey Shore, and I know there's somebody in this room that watches that show. Four hours a month to change America. We are a nation. The generation after generation has come together. And why is it that I feel more now than I have in a while that we're pulling each other apart? We have the ability to transform and I end with these words. It was at the end of a book by the author I mentioned before, James Baldwin, where he called to the conscience of a country in the 1960s at a time that the nation was feared to be pulling apart. Cities were beginning to explode. Racial lines seemed to be getting deeper. And he wrote at the end of one of my favorite books by this author called The Fire Next Time, these words that I paraphrase. He said, I know what I'm asking you now is impossible. But in today's day and age, the impossible is the least we can demand. For one is, after all, emboldened by the spectacle of human history in general, and Negro history in particular, for it testifies to nothing less than the perpetual achievement of the impossible. And now, if we, and by we I mean the truly conscious blacks, and the truly conscious whites, if we come together as lovers, and insist upon and demand the consciousness of us others, we may be able to end this nightmare, and remake the world. And if we don't, We're destined to recreate the Bible prophecy made real in the Negro spiritual. God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time. I want to tell you, I have faith in my nation. We are Americans and the fire will burn. And it will not be cities exploding in racial divisiveness and violence and concentrated poverty. The fire that will burn in our generation must be and will be the torch of hope, of peace, of strength, of prosperity. It will be the very torch held by the Lady Liberty in New York Harbor. This is not just a possibility. This, I believe, to be our destiny. Thank you. Newark, New Jersey Mayor Cory Booker
0: speaking last week at the Westminster Town Hall Forum at Westminster Presbyterian in downtown Minneapolis. After his speech, uh, Booker took some questions from the audience with Westminster Senior Pastor Tim Hart Anderson moderating. We live here in Minneapolis where the achievement gap between African American students in high school and Euro-American students is one of the greatest, the highest gaps in the country. What do you suggest to us to
1: do about that in our city? So uh, going back to the theme of that we are in a wonderful point in America where we don't have to reinvent things. There are wonderful models of where the achievement gap has been closed. And we talked about one uh, in your office earlier. uh, Jeffrey Canada had started some charter schools in his uh, uh, area of New York. And through longitudinal studies, they've eviscerated the achievement gap uh, along racial lines and socioeconomic status lines. And I'm not a big, I, don't, I'm not a, I have no philosophy of education. I don't abide by charters or choice or traditional public schools or magnet schools or home schools. Uh, I'm just a believer in results. And where the results are working, and Newark has schools that are traditional public schools, magnet schools, charter schools, those schools we should expand, we should learn from, we should let them become viral and infect the failing schools uh, and take on those practices. So I challenge you here in this, in this, in this uh, room, all of us, to be sort of uh, 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 exponents of, of, of progress, not of philosophy. And, and where you see models, look a little deeper and well, what is this school doing that others don't? And I'll give you one simple example of something I adhere to. Um, we, I grew up in a public school system that time was the constant and achievement was the variable. And so we were so uh, uh, rigorous in our adherence to time that if a snow day happened, uh, the recurring theme right now for me, guys, uh, um, if a snow day happened, they would uh, add another day on, even if we were just sitting in the auditorium watching uh, reruns of The Little Rascals. And I'm telling you, that's what we did in the small, amazing elementary school that I grew up in. So achievement then would be the variable. What I see in the high-performing schools in Newark is they have achievement as the constant and time as the variable. And so the kids in some of our most successful schools go to schools longer school days, They have Saturday math academies for kids that are not doing well. They go to school for longer school years. And guess what? They get tremendous results. Now, the rest of the globe is far ahead of us on this. I'm gonna tell you right now. From Asia to Europe, they are educating their kids with far more hours spent on the tasks that are important. And this goes to the Colin Powell point. If we're competing with those countries in the future and our population is falling behind because of our practices, something has to shift and change. And let me say one thing controversial, because I don't want us all to think we all agree, as Lincoln said, uh, too much agreement kills a conversation. Um, I think that we have to stop paying teachers like hourly wage workers. They are not. They are, they're professionals. In fact, they're the most valuable professionals for our GDP that we have. So why don't we start paying them like they're worth? I believe in radically increasing teacher salary, and I'm talking doubling and tripling what it is right now. But don't hold me back, because I'm also in favor of ending the ridiculousness of saying that if I survive in a school for two years, keeping my head down, and not bothering anybody, then I have lifetime employment no matter what happens. So. So I think if we could pay teachers for uh, based upon incentive with 21st century standards, not just test scores, but we have very good ways now of of judging the performance of of kids and how they're excelling, that we should begin to pay the profession what it's worth and demand from them, like young lawyers who are coming out of law school, who stay until the work's done. They don't look at their contract and say, my contract says I can leave at 3.05. They say, I stay until the job gets done.
0: We have a son, one of our uh, Listeners here, says this, we have a son who is incarcerated and will be released soon. What advice can you give to us as parents to get our child back on track? What advice do you have for our son?
1: Uh, and did they say the age of the child there? Does, does not does say not the say. age of the child. Um, so this is the biggest sin, and many one of the big sins in America right now is our criminal justice system and the, the, the degree to which we lock people up in this country. And um, you see entire states starting to crumble economically because of the cost of that. Um, my friend uh, in California, Arnold, um, is, uh, uh, is, uh, it's one of the challenges he has is, is how do you lock up or keep the people locked up that you have? New Jersey spending billions of dollars trying to do it. And the prison population, uh, is just getting more costly and costly to taxpayers. And so. What we don't realize is there are so many, and I don't know your state laws as well as I know mine, but most states have these incredible laws that make it so easy to flow right back into incarceration. And so we are trying to become one of the centers in America of innovation in helping men and women succeed. And we've done everything from first study the problem. We realize that most men go back to prison because of uh, technical parole violations. They come out, they don't realize they have a warrant out for their arrest for a parking ticket that they couldn't show up to pay because they were in prison. Uh, so it became a warrant out for their arrest or they can't get their driver's license because there's certain restrictions on that. So we started the nation's first pro bono legal service project. I asked all the law firms to come together and liberate the economic potential of the people who were there by helping them with their administrative law problems, their expungement problems and the like. We, me and others, fought for uh, laws to help expand uh, uh, ex-offender re-entry opportunities in our state from expanding the, the what can be expunged and pulled off your record to other things. So I know in New Jersey, specifically to a parent who's concerned about their child, um, we're trying to do a lot of things Um, to plug them into opportunities and prevent people from slipping back in. Because the majority of kids that I know, they're involved in things that get them locked up. And the majority of the kids are being locked up for nonviolent drug offenses in my area. Um, If they were given the right opportunities, they would make the right decisions. And so that's the one thing I would say to you specifically is find out what uh, your son yearns for, what he dreams about. When he's in a position like we all should get quietly every single day, um, where you can just be at peace and pray and meditate and think about what is the highest calling I have for myself. When your son is in that space, what does he want to do? And then try to bring him or him the opportunities that can help him do that and be very practical about him that this is going to be a time of great sacrifice and struggle in your life. This is not going to be an easy road, but let's break down your ambitions into, into manageable goals and let's go after them day after day, month after month.
0: You've given an inspiring example to us today of what government can do in addressing problems in this nation. One of the great obstacles we face is breaking down mistrust of government, the view that the government is the enemy. How do those of us who see the potential of government to enable change persuade the others that government is not
1: the enemy, but it's us? Um, So I I think the first thing we have to accept is uh, that we get the government we deserve and our government is always a reflection of the people and to try to separate i mean divisive thinking is what is going to going to hurt america it's 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 interesting people forget that the hallmark of our nation uh is three latin utterances e pluribus unum and so our government isn't some alien thing far away um it is it is us and we are in a democracy And so this gets back to, again, these fundamental core principles that I have that I try to govern my life. And I I have slips in integrity every day like we all do. But I try to govern my life. And this is one of the great things I try to think consciously every single day is that we all have a choice in every moment. This moment right now, we have a choice. We can either accept things as they are or take responsibility for changing them. And and so I want to always be one of those people that's taking responsibilities for changing them. I did not, uh, my career, I did not want to be in government. And I had the same um, cynicism about politics. My heroes, if you walk into the mayor's office, you see Gandhi, you see King, uh, you see three civil rights marchers pinned against a wall by a fire hose. On uh, my desk is, is, is Harriet Tubman. None of these folks were political leaders and I had a lot of suspicion growing up. And I do believe this is a balanced university energy you send out, you draw to, to you. So I hated those politicians and dear God, I came, became one. Um, um, but I, I said that I was gonna live a purpose-driven life and always straight to my purpose and not look at positions. And so I came to a crossroads in my life where I saw that the government in Newark, in my opinion, was hurting dramatically the things that could happen there. And uh, instead of just talking about how bad government was, I decided to do something about it. So to the, to the people that are cynical about government, I say, if you surrender that and just criticize it or say, I hate government, therefore I'm just going to try to reduce it and push it away, I think you're missing your responsibility as American in this democracy. And for those of us who know that government has is neutral, has a capacity to be very evil, um, or has a capacity to do tremendously good, depending on who's involved, we have to continue to work to create a government that does inspire, again, a government that does reflect our highest values and highest aspirations, and there's only one way I know about doing that also, and that's by getting involved. Thank you, Cory
0: Booker, for your presentation and your conversation with us today.